As you open your Bibles this morning, if you'll go ahead and turn them to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, and we'll be looking at the uh, final verses there in verses 11 through 21. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21, and before I read, I would like to begin with a short prayer. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would give understanding to our minds and faith to our hearts. And God, we pray this simply in your son's holy name. Amen. So 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21, I'll read the text and then we will dive into it together. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So in the conclusion of Paul's letter to Timothy, he makes three final charges to the young pastor. Three final charges. They are simply the charge for the man of God, We see in verses 11 through 16, the charge for the rich within the church. We see that in 17 through 19. And then finally, we see the charge to guard the gospel in his closing verses in 20 and 21. So first we see, this is quite a long text, so we're going to try to go quickly. So the first thing we see is the charge for the man of God. Paul's addressing his charge here in this passage to the man of God, which, is, uh, which refers specifically to Timothy, but it also applies, we must understand this as we work through these charges, it applies to everyone in the congregation. Paul is calling out Timothy especially here as one who is called to pastor the flock and therefore be an example among the believers there in Ephesus. And so, here in this first charge, Paul 
calls Timothy to five instructions, five imperatives, five verbs. He calls Timothy to flee, to pursue, to fight, to take hold, and to keep. But as for you, O man of God, flee. Flee these things. If we look back at verse 8, what we learned last week from Taylor as he taught, we can see what Paul was referring to. He says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we are content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is what Paul is warning Timothy about to flee. He says, flee these things. Discontentment, love of money, whatever sin or temptation might entice the believer away from the faith. You'll notice that as Paul presents these charges to Timothy, that they, they require action. He's not using a passive tone. He is giving a clear and deliberate instruction to the young man. Flee away from these things, for they lead to destruction. And now we have to ask ourselves as we work through these charges and as we see these commands that Timothy gives or Paul gives to Timothy here we have to ask ourselves are we doing this again this is not simply a command to Timothy alone but he as a pastor of the flock is to be an example and so as he does these things it is expected that his congregation is doing these things and as we your pastors witness Timothy being called to do this by Paul, we ourselves strive to live this way in hopes that we likewise would be examples to you, congregation. And so I must ask you as a pastor, are you doing this? Do you flee sin? Are you fleeing greed? Are you fleeing discontentment? Are you fleeing sins of lust? and pride, and greed, and jealousy, and envy, have you grown accustomed to your sin? Or even worse, have you grown comfortable with your sin? Paul's first charge to the young pastor is to begin with, flee your sin. And so Paul commands Timothy to flee And as he turns his back on sin to flee from it, he commands Timothy to pursue, in the opposite direction, to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. I'll work through this list quickly. Righteousness simply is the idea of living out what union with Christ uh, through faith imparts on the believer. As in Philippians 1.11 filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. It is conduct that is in accord with God's will and pleasing to Him. 
Next is godliness. Godliness is the duty that man owes to God. It is this concept of the new existence in the believer as faith in Christ combines with a certain manner of life. This is our godliness. Next is faith. Faith is simply trust in God. Then love. Love is the affection that one has for God and others. And it's what is worked out in the heart of the believer through the Spirit of Christ in the heart of his disciples. Next is steadfastness. Steadfastness, it is the attitude of patience and trust that a believer has, especially under unjust treatment. And then finally, gentleness. Gentleness is simply the opposite of an overbearing or mean attitude. And it's only by being made alive with Christ that we are free to turn our backs on and flee sin and to pursue these things. But what we need to understand as we progress through this charge is that even though we are set free in Christ to pursue this, that does not mean that it comes naturally to us. So we see Paul's language begin to or continue to intensify here. He's already said, flee this, pursue this. Now he says, fight. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue these, fight the good fight of the faith. Believing in Christ and living out this faith in obedience, it is a fight. It is a struggle. There will be many trials that will tempt one to abandon the faith, to to cave to the temptation of sin, to seek refuge in the things of this world. But the man of God must fight. We are, after all, at war. That is why Paul instructs the church in Ephesus, the church that Timothy is currently serving as a pastor of. Paul writes a letter to that congregation. And in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, he says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, we are at war. And I wonder this morning as you picked out your dress or your suit, or as you got your kids dressed and fed, as you made plans for lunch or to watch football later today, during any of that time this morning, did you prepare for war? Because that is what we have been called to this day. And he goes on, flee, pursue, fight, and now take hold. This picture of taking hold, it invokes the image of 
Jacob in Genesis 32 as he wrestled with God throughout the night until he received a blessing. It is taking hold and never letting go, tightening your grip as the struggle goes on. And lest we should think that this life suddenly becomes easier when we believe, we are reminded here that this Christian walk is a struggle. For some of you parents with young kids, you know that walking can be a struggle. What do you do when you're walking down the street or through the parking lot and a a car comes barreling through well over the speed limit? You grab your child and you hold on to them for dear life. Even if they squirm and struggle and resist and want to get away, you do not let go. You hold on to their little lives. This is the picture of this struggle. We must grab hold of this eternal life and never let it go. And then finally, we're called to keep. To take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, Timothy, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. One commentator uh, said that Paul's I charge you here in verse 13. It is the rhetorical equivalent of grabbing Timothy by the shoulders and giving him a heartfelt and bracing shake. We've all had conversations with someone where we felt we needed to convince them no matter what. And then to further reinforce his tone and the gravity of what is at stake, Paul makes this charge in the presence of God who is the giver of all things and life. And in the presence of Christ Jesus, the same Christ who made the good confession, this same confession that Timothy would have made either at his baptism or at the moment where he's appointed to be a pastor, Christ made this confession first in the presence of Pontius Pilate, simply that Jesus is Lord. Paul is intensifying his plea with Timothy. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. Keep the commandments. And as Paul intensifies his charge, he leads Timothy into this uh, pseudo doxology of praise here at the, the uh, end in verses 15 through 16. Now you might wonder, why does Paul include in the middle of all this instruction this, this doxology, this, uh, this brief statement of theology of who God is? And I want to ask you this morning, if someone were to ask you, who is God? what would your response be? Who is God? Paul says he is the blessed and only sovereign. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. There is no other like him. Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus 15, 11, we read, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Or 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Or Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Or recall in Exodus 33, when Moses asked God to to, uh, show him his glory, God responds to Moses in verse 20. He says, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Moses catches just a glimpse of the glory of God in this moment. And then what happens next in chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. His skin was literally shining from simply being in the presence of God for a moment. Aaron and all of the people of Israel saw Moses And behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. It was simply for a moment. But as Moses left the mountain, the lasting effects of witnessing God's glory shone from his face, and it drove fear in the hearts of the Israelites. He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Why does Paul include this doxology here? Because fleeing sin and pursuing righteousness and fighting the good fight and taking hold of eternal life and keeping the commandments, it all begins with God. How can you take hold of eternal life apart from God. He alone who has immortality. You don't don't flee sin by just telling yourself to do better or running as fast as you possibly can. You flee sin by falling to your knees. 
You don't pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness by setting reminders on your phone. You pursue them by turning to their source. You don't fight the good fight and take hold of eternal life and keep the commandments by trying really, really hard. You fight by surrendering everything that you have. All of your best efforts to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so we see this first charge to the man of God. Secondly, we see the charge for the rich within the church, within verses 17 and 19. Paul, 17 through 19. Paul calls Timothy now to shift his attention away from himself and onto the rich within the church. And before we get into this charge, we should acknowledge that like Paul's instructions for the man of God, which we must also apply to our own leaders and to every individual in the church, these commands for the rich likewise are applicable to every church member. With or without a large bank account, any individual can fall prey to the temptation of greed and wealth. That said, Paul's concern here is especially for the wealthy. He says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. This is a call to guard against the pride that often comes with prosperity. The richness of one's pocket should never translate to a poverty of one's humility. This is similar to Paul's description of false teachers. Back again to what Taylor taught last week, now in verse 4. He says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. These like to throw their weight around. They cry foul when they're unhappy. They cry slander when others try to correct them or they are confronted over their sin. For better or worse, the church is not going to change without their permission. They'll fight for what they want and would sooner sink the ship than allow someone else to steer. Because of their wealth and the potential negative influence that it may have on the individual and the church, Paul charges Timothy to make this plea with those who are rich within the church that they must be humble. He says, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They must set their hopes on God. What is the temptation here? Wealth, it can buy happiness. Wealth can provide comfort. Wealth 
can offer freedom from anxiety. Certainly there are those here in this room who could imagine a certain level of worry decreasing if all of their financial burdens were just gone. And yet, even though money can buy you a house and a car and a vacation home with a jet ski and pay off bills and contribute to a few extra years of early retirement, at best, Paul says, all of it is uncertain. Banks fail, markets crash, jobs are lost, more expenses come. But what, not, what is not uncertain, Paul says, is God. God is the unwavering source of everything that is good. And He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And this is interesting here. Unless the rich should think that they have somehow earned their wealth because of their hard work, or because of their deservedness, the reality is that all that they have, even their wealth, comes from God. God who is the opposite of uncertain. The wealthy must not be so foolish to think that their wealth will provide for them security and happiness and comfort and peace. But they must put their hope in the God who can provide those things and who does provide the material wealth that they currently enjoy. It's not, it's not a sin to enjoy God's gifts. It is, however, a sin to enjoy them more than the giver. Therefore, the wealthy must learn how to live with their eye on God more than on their wealth. And how do they do this? Paul says they are to do good. That implies that with or without their wealth, the rich need to be acting in keeping with God's will and His goodness. Certainly there are ways that the wealthy can and should do good with their wealth within the church. We can think of specifically the Lottie Moon offering that we are coming to an end of now. We've set a goal that would be completely otherwise unattainable if some of the top givers did not contribute to this offering. So yes, use your wealth to do good, but also, Paul says, Do good within your church. Do not use your wealth as an excuse to not serve the church in, in other ways that you might find less desirable or more taxing. I think you'll find if you were to serve in our preschool or our children's wing with those little children, that they do not care if their Sunday school teacher is a banker or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a mechanic. They might think it's pretty cool if you're a fireman, though, but not because of how much money you make. 
Paul is calling on the rich within the church to do good. This is a call to serve. More than simply to throw your money at the problems the church has, serve with your hands and feet. That is what leads to humility. And they are to, and they are to be generous and ready to share, Paul says. Again, there are ways that the wealthy can and should do good with their wealth within the church. It's not enough to be humble and to serve the church in other ways, but the wealthy, uh, the wealth, with wealth comes the responsibility of generosity. Not that everyone within the church is not called to be generous. Recall the story in Luke 21 as the uh, widow gives to the offering two small copper coins, and Jesus states that she has given more than all of the wealthy there because they give out of prosperity, but she has given out of her poverty. Yet to those who have been given much, they are to give much. An unwillingness to be generous with others in need or with the mission of the church reveals to what extent idolatry has entered into a wealthy person's heart. By doing good, by being rich in good works, and giving generously, Paul says, they are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is calling back to the initial charge that he makes to Timothy, to take hold of eternal life. The treasure that the rich are storing up for themselves here in these verses, it is that. It is eternal life. This is not about having a bigger mansion in heaven or greater riches in heaven. This is about grabbing hold of that which is the true treasure. Eternal life. Take hold of this which is truly life. Paul is charging Timothy to warn the wealthy within the church as these false teachers we saw last week are seeking to gain wealth, to gain influence. Likely they're, they're uh, uh, becoming familiar with the wealthy in that congregation and trying to buddy up next to them and to use their connections in order to increase their own authority, their own power. And so maybe they're giving the wealthy within the church undue authority, undue say in things so that they can feel the effects of their wealth so that they can be in control. It's tempting, Paul warns. But he also warns about it's danger. He says, no, don't let them get away with this. Timothy, young pastor, if you love your congregants, if you love those in your pews, even those who are, especially those who are wealthy, you might be tempted to simply do what they want and keep them happy. But he says, Timothy, don't do this. Don't let them be haughty. Instead, call them to do good. 
and to store up instead for themselves treasures that are in heaven. Do not fall prey to the temptation that comes with wealth. It promises a better life according to this world, but only the gospel can offer that which is truly life. And now we get to the charge, uh, the final charge that Paul delivers to Timothy in this letter. In verses 20 and 21, he has, he has two concerns. Guard the truth, one, and then second, avoid irreverent babble. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He says, first, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit in this case is simply the gospel itself. It is the truth that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The imagery used of guarding and entrustment, it paints a a vivid picture of a soldier-like readiness and loyalty. Timothy is called to be vigilant, to be ready to counteract any assault on this deposit of truth that has been entrusted to him. And now likewise, with the previous charges, we too must recognize that this deposit has been entrusted to us as well. And just as was in the case in Timothy's day, today this truth is under attack. As the world around us becomes more antagonistic towards the gospel and towards Christianity, and even historical Christian denominations who we have shared the mission of delivering the gospel to the ends of the world with, even as these entire denominations turn from the truth of God's Word and waver on their understanding of what that truth is, we, church, must stand firm, and we must stay true to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The second instruction that Paul gives to Timothy here in this final charge is to avoid irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. This takes a a more cautionary tone than the first. It, it, It is a call to avoid these controversies that Paul has been alluding to throughout this letter, to avoid these, co- uh, these uh, controversies and these contradictions of the false teachers. There are times there and, and occasions that call for a pastor to spend extra time in study and in dialogue and in engagement, but there are other times when 
we, when the refusal to play along is required. Paul had previously warned Timothy back in chapter 4 against the entanglement in the controversies of the false teachers. Now, a pastor's energy could be spent, totally absorbed, in taking offense to every bad take of theology on the internet. But pastors need to be able to discern when and where to guard against, when and where to plant a flag and to stand firm for the truth of the gospel, and when and where to avoid these controversies. But there's also, as we see, a sense of urgency in this final charge. It's not simply to avoid wasting time that Paul calls Timothy to avoid these false teachers, but it could mean a matter of salvation. The faithful pastor must discipline his own heart to stay true to the faith and must not allow himself to be enticed by another message. And by engaging with these false teachers, Paul has warned Timothy that the man of God risks being persuaded by their lies. And if this is true of Timothy, this is true of your pastors, this is true of you as well. Guard the faith, yes, of course, stand firm on the truth of the Word of God and stand for the gospel and defend it, defend it and the salvation by which you have been called, but pick your battles. Be cautious of the influence of those who you engage with. They are not worth your time. As your pastor, let me tell you, every bad theology take on the internet, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may be, is not worth your comments. You should defend the gospel. You should not take offense to everything that you disagree with. Now, as we close, let me remind you, as we work through these charges and we hear Paul's plea with Timothy and with us to flee and to pursue and to fight and to take hold and to keep the commandments and to be generous and to avoid the temptation of wealth and to guard the truth of the gospel as we hear all of these commands it can feel overwhelming it can feel daunting how long lord do we have to keep this fight up he says back in verse 14 to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the lord jesus christ we keep it up until christ returns that is exhausting. And it is impossible 
So what do we do when we take one more step and the best we can do is fall to our knees, unable to go on? We turn to the grace of God. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So let me urge you this morning, as you receive these charges, even as you feel daunted at the aspect of having to live this way the rest of your life, even as you feel daunted with the aspect of having to live this way the rest of this afternoon, Do not rely on your own strength to do this. Instead, again, turn to the one who is able. Let me urge you, go on fighting the good fight of the faith. And when you can no longer stand, fall into the embrace of the one who gives life to all things. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we need Thee. Oh, how we need Thee. The strength to flee sin, to pursue righteousness, the fight, to fight the good fight, to take hold of eternal life, to keep the commandments. It could only ever come from You, Lord. Guard us from the temptations of this world, from wealth and greed and lust and envy and anger. God, and prepare us as we put on your armor, Lord, prepare us to protect the truth of your word. God, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.